Uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word, which you have preserved throughout the generations, that we may know you and the Lord Jesus. We pray that today you will open up our eyes, our ears and our hearts to receive your word as it really is, the words of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in April this year, we witnessed an extremely important event, a historic event, an event that will go down in our history books, an event that brought a crowd of about a million people to the streets. What was that event? Well, it was the royal wedding. Remember that? The royal wedding, the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. Now, I'm sure many of us, especially the blokes here, were glued to the TV that night, perhaps a bit teary-eyed watching the vows being made. It was just so romantic, wasn't it? And it was a spectacular event, a majestic event. Horse carriages, bodyguards, expensive cars, all these big officials, and what is held at the great Westminster Abbey, a brilliant place. It was magnificent, a grand event. And it had to be, right? It had to be because Prince William will one day become King of England. He'll become the head of the Commonwealth States. Prince William will one day become our head of state. And so it was a high call- it's a high calling that William has to be king one day. But what do you think William's role will be once he becomes king? So once he inherits that throne, what will his role be? Well, he will have a whole stack of constitutional duties, duties of the state. He'll recognise successes and excellences in his country. He'll knight people, hand out medals and awards. He'll spend a lot of time at lavish dinners. He'll attend all sorts of ceremonies. He'll cut ribbons. And he'll have all those official roles. But if we think about the kings throughout history... Their story was vastly different. Many kings, many kings throughout history never had it so easy. Because kings were not just a ceremonial head of state. Kings throughout history were also the military protectors. They were the warriors, the commanders of their armies. Kings throughout history went to war. They led their armies to war. Kings killed at war. And kings were killed at war. For example, Alexander the Great, the great Macedonian king, he was a great military chief, responsible for creating one of the largest empires in ancient ancient history. Or another king, Genghis Khan, another powerful military leader. He was founder of the uh, Mongol Empire, became the emperor there. Or another king, Napoleon, another great powerful military leader. He's known to be that great military strategist and he became Emperor of France for a while. And so many kings throughout history went to war. They went to fight. They led their armies. And this is what we see in our passage today. Kings went to war and the great King David, the greatest king of Israel, went to war, was a great king of war. Now, in our passage today, we have three chapters, 18 to 20 of 1 Chronicles, and in these three chapters, we're given 
many years of battles and wars that David fought in. And in these chapters, we learn of the battles that David had against all these surrounding nations, nations around Israel. And it was the job of David, their king, to fight for his nation, to subdue the enemies. And so how did David go in all those battles? Well, let's have a look at chapter 18. So in chapter 18, we first learn that towards the west of Israel, David defeats and subdues the Philistines. So we've got a map up here. Judah and Israel, they're still one nation. Towards the west, the Philistines. He goes there, he defeats them. So have a look at chapter 18, verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. He took Gath, that is their capital, and his surrounding villages from the control of the Philistines. Now the Philistines were the, the arch enemy of Israel. They, they were at war for a long time. It was the nation that produced giants like Goliath. So that's the nation. So that's towards the west. And then David moves towards the east. And here he fights and defeats the Moabites. So you can see towards the east of Judah there, he defeats the Moabites. Now they were defeated and they became subject to David. And they brought David tribute. Now, tribute is a bit like uh, mafia protection money, but on a larger scale. In the ancient world, a weaker or defeated nation, they would pay tribute. They would bring gifts to a more powerful nation as a sign of their respect, as a sign of their submission or allegiance. And so this is what we see in verse 2. Have a look. Verse 2. David also defeated the Moabites, and they became subject to him and brought tribute. And so having defeated the, the Philistines over in the west and then the uh, Moabites in the east, David, uh, David moves up north. Here he fights Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So in this next slide, so up north. So uh, Zobah was, uh, was above Aram there. He moves up north, he defeats them, he captures their chariots, charioteers and foot soldiers, and he hamstrung their chariot horses. Now, why would you spend all that time ham hamstringing all the horses? Well, by hamstringing the horses, what you do is you render those horses useless. You, you make them a liability. They become a liability to the nation. And so what David pretty much did was immobilize their army, render their army useless. And this is what we see in verses 3 and 4. Have a look there, verses 3 and 4. Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, when he went to establish his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. So this is up in the north. Now, still up in the north, the Arameans from Aram there, they came and helped Hadadezer, king of Zobah. But they too were defeated by David. They became subject to David and they brought David tribute. And this is what we see in verses 5 and 6 now. So 5. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. And then after that, David plundered the cities of Hadadezer. 
And so what do we have now? Well, in the west, the Philistines defeated. East, Moabites defeated. Up north, defeated. What next? Well, down south. That's where David goes next. Well, here David sends his nephew, Abishai. And he went down south and struck down the Edomites. So you see Edom down south there. Now, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Remember him? Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. They were brothers, but now they've become enemies. And the Edomites, too, became subject to David. And this is what we see in verses 12 and 13. So verse 12, Abishai, son of Zeruiah, struck down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. So that's briefly chapter, chapter 18. The north, the uh, west, the east, and the south were subdued. All that was left now was another nation over in the east, the Ammonites. And so chapter 19, the focus is just on the Ammonites. Now in chapter 19, David did have special, a good relation, a peaceful relation with the Ammonites. And so when Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, died, David thought he would do something kind. And so in verse 2 of chapter 19, David thought, I will show kindness to Hunun, son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. But what did this king do? Well, rather than accept David's act of kindness, Hanun instead listened to his advisors. His advisors came up with this conspiracy theory. They thought in verse 3, Do you think David is honouring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? Haven't his men come to you to explore and spy out the country and overthrow it? And so what did they do? Well, they humiliated David's men. They gave them a good shave. They cut holes in their pants. Now, in Newtown, that's a fashion statement. (laughs) But back then, that was shameful. And so you can imagine things didn't go down too well with Israel. And so war broke out. The Ammonites, they hired mercenaries from up north and from east, and they prepared for battle. And David, he, uh, he sent his other nephew, Joab, to fight for them. And what happened? Well, the Ammonites over in the east, they fled. They went back to their cities. But the Arameans, those mercenaries from the north who were hired, they were defeated once again. They were made subject once again to David. And that's chapter 19. So the focus was over in the east. But the east was not yet subdued. The Ammonites, you see, weren't defeated yet. They fled back to their cities. Only the mercenaries, the Arameans, were defeated. And so in chapter 20, the focus remains on the Ammonites. So here, Joab was sent out again. And in chapter 20, verse 1, have a look there. Chapter 20, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, Joab led the armed forces. He laid waste the land of the Ammonites and went to Rabbah and besieged it. So Rabbah was the capital of Ammon. And so the Ammonite cities were defeated and they were plundered. Okay. Now, the second half of chapter 20, the Philistines towards the west. Remember, the Philistines, they were the arch enemy of Israel. Uh, They were already defeated at the beginning of chapter 18. 
But the Philistines were like this fawn in the flesh. They'd never stop uprising against Israel. And this time they went to fight again. But this time they had giants to fight for them. One of the giants, Sephi, was a descendant of the Rephaites. Now, now the Rephaites were an ethnic group, uh, and they were a group that had, uh, they, they were extremely tall, so they were giants. Another giant, Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, went out to fight. And then there was the other man, the huge man, the man with six toes and six fingers on each hand and foot. So those three giants, as terrifying as they were, they were also defeated and made subject to David. And so the Philistines were once again defeated. That's chapter 20. So all the surrounding nations now, north, south, east, west, all defeated, all made subject to David. David was their king. David was the king of all, who, who fought, who killed, and subdued his enemies. So let's think about that. So three chapters, very briefly. The battles of chapters 18 to 20, they seemed quite easy, didn't they? David, the king, quite easily defeated all his enemies. If anything, David seemed like this awesome king, an invincible king, a king that anyone would want to have. But not only that, not only was David powerful, have a look at chapter 18, verse 14. So verse 14. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. That's a great king, isn't it? Not only was David powerful, but he was also righteous and just. That's a king anyone would want to have. But now let me ask... Why was it that David was so invincible? Why was he so good? Why was he able to defeat his enemies so easily? Well, was David so powerful like Alexander the Great? Was he so intelligent like Genghis Khan? Did he have the best military strategies like Napoleon? Was that why he won so easily? Well, perhaps David were all those things. But that's not the reason given in these chapters. In this story, we're given comments along the way by the author that shed light on why David won, why David was able to defeat his enemies. So we're shown this in three places. The first one is in chapter 18, verse 6. Have a look there, chapter 18, verse 6. So after the defeat of the Philistines, the Moabites, Zobah and the Arameans, the author commented, the second half of verse 6, it was the Lord that gave David victory everywhere he went. And we see that same comment in chapter 18, verse 13 now. So after the Edomites were defeated, the author commented that the Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. And even David's commander, Joab, he too realised that all these victories were the Lord's doing. So chapter 19, verse 13 now. Job says, Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. And so, though David did seem like such an awesome king, so invincible, 
it wasn't his intelligence that won it for him. It wasn't his power that won it for him. It wasn't his great military strategies that won it for him. It was all the Lord's doing. It was God who gave him victory everywhere he went. Now, if that was so, let me now ask you, why would God do that? Why would God treat David so well? Why did God favour David? I mean, did God have something against the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites? Did God have something against them? Well, do you notice they all rhyme with Vegemite? God hates Vegemite. No, God doesn't. It's not that. That's not the reason. So why did God bless David in such a great way? Well, you see, David was no ordinary king. David was not just one of the kings of the earth that God randomly chose and decided to bless and give the victories. That's not the reason. Instead, David was special. David was God's Messiah. David was God's Christ. David was the anointed one, the one chosen by God. And that was exactly what we saw in last, week talk, last week's talk, wasn't it? In, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Remember those promises that God made to David. We might have a look at that again. So turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 17 and we'll have a look at verses 9 and 10. So God says to David, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they, will ha- so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not, be oppress- will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue your enemies. You see, God was fulfilling the promises he made just a chapter earlier. But there's in fact more to that. God was in fact fulfilling a greater promise, a promise that he made right at the beginning in Genesis, right at the beginning, right after the fall. Now, do you remember the promise God made right at the beginning? It's a promise that one day from an offspring of Eve, there would be someone who would come who would crush the serpent's head. Remember that promise right at the beginning? The one who would defeat evil. So we'll have a look at that promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It'll be up on the slide. God says, speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's a promise right at the beginning. And so right from the beginning, the world was already waiting in anticipation of the coming of this serpent crusher, the one who would defeat evil. And in the Genesis story, the promise of this offspring of Eve, it gets narrowed down to an offspring of Abraham. And towards the end of Genesis, the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Abraham gets narrowed down further to an offspring of Judah. And then when we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 17, we see that that offspring of Eve, the one promise, gets narrowed down further to an offspring of David. King David therefore had a special place in God's big promise, the promise he made right at the beginning. Because it will be from David's seed, David's offspring, 
David's house, David's dynasty, that that offspring will come. So have a look at uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, uh, verse 11 with me. So verse 11. The promise that God made to David. God says, When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And then in verse 14, I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. So that promise of the offspring of David is the offspring that was promised in Genesis, the offspring of Eve, the one who would come, who would crush the serpent's head. And so why did God treat David so well, give him all those victories? Well, firstly, it was because God did make those promises that David, his enemies would be defeated. But more than that, David plays an integral role in God's bigger plan of history, in God's bigger promise made right at the beginning. The promise of the offspring of Eve is an offspring of David. And that's why David has a special place in God's big plan. Now that all sounds good. All sounds great. David was great, a great king. Now I want you to think about what the original readers of this book would have felt. Now, do you remember their situation? They've been exiled to Babylon. They've stayed there for 70 years. The Persians, when they came to power, overthrew the Babylonians. And then the Israelites were allowed back to their homeland. Now that they've returned, they've found that their homeland was desolate. It was destroyed. So how do you think they would have felt reading this story, the stories of David and his great battles and all his victories? How would they have felt? They've returned to homeland. Nothing's there. No temple, no, no homes. How do you think you would have felt if you were there? Well, I think I would have felt rather depressed, greatly depressed. I would have felt sad and hopeless. I mean, it was great during David's reign, but that's 600 years ago. That's, a, that's long past, and David's no longer around. In fact, there's no Davidic offspring that's still around. There's no king on David's throne. In fact, the last king of Israel, the last king of Judah, Jehoiachin, he was hopeless, and even he was, he was long gone. And so there, at this time, there's no king to fight for us, no one to defend us, no one to save us. And the surrounding nations, they're no longer subject to us. In fact, we're subject to this foreign empire. And so the glory days are long gone. And so reading about all these great stories of David and his victories, I think that would have left me rather depressed, rather flat and hopeless. I, I probably would have felt that the author of Chronicles was, was kicking me while I'm down, by reminding me of how good it used to be. I mean, what has happened to the promises of God? Where is that offspring of David that he has promised? That serpent crusher? Are those promises no more? But though I may have felt that way, the author of Chronicles 
wrote these things down to produce another response. The author of 1 Chronicles wrote these things down to give hope to the post-exilic Jews. That though things are dark and gloomy now, they were reminded that it was God who gave David the victories all along. That despite there, there being no king at the moment, God will keep his promise. That Davidic offspring will come. And that that Davidic offspring will be given victories over his enemies. And you know what? Well, it turns out that that was exactly what God has done. Because when we turn our Bibles to the first page of the New Testament, what do we see? The first page of the New Testament. We see the genealogies. We see a long list of names, names that are hard to read. I mean, just think about that. Would you ever begin a book with a long list of names? It's like going to the movies, and for the first five minutes, you're watching credits. How exciting. But the genealogy of Matthew is very important. Because what does it teach? What does it show us? Well, it shows us that God has indeed kept his promises. That Jesus is that offspring promised right at the beginning in Genesis. Jesus is that offspring of Eve, that the offspring of Abraham, offspring of Judah, and offspring of David. Jesus is that Davidic king promised right from the beginning, the one who will crush the serpent's head. And so when Jesus came on the scene, how did he rule as king? What did he do? Was Jesus like David? Did he spend his life trying to defeat the Romans? Remember, the Romans were in control then. Did Jesus spend his life trying to kick out the Romans to reclaim their land? Or, or did Jesus spend his time trying to get rid of Herod, that puppet king, and to install himself in pup, uh, Herod's palace? Was that what Jesus did? Well, no. Jesus came... This promised offspring came to fight a far greater battle than what David was involved in. David was involved with, in fighting those Vegemites, those Moabites, Edomites, and so forth. But Jesus came and fought in a greater battle, a more serious spiritual warfare. You see, the battle that Jesus came to fight is a battle that we're all involved in, a battle in which we are like the Israelites. We're involved in this battle. And it's a battle where our loss is guaranteed. Because it's a battle against the serpent, against Satan and his hold on death. It's a battle in which Satan is the ruler of this world. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's a battle in which Satan schemes and tempts us. It's a battle which is against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's a battle against Satan who holds the power of death. That's the battle we're all involved in. Israel were involved with battles with their surrounding nations. But we're involved in a greater battle, a far more dangerous battle than that. And none of us have any chance of winning in this battle. 
We don't have the powers and we don't have the resources to fight in this battle. It's not a battle in which we can use conventional warfare weapons. We can't use bombs and tanks and missiles. We have nothing in this battle. And so, like Israel, we need a king. We need a king like David to fight for us. And that is exactly what we have in Jesus, the one who will crush the serpent's head. Now, how did Jesus do that? How did Jesus crush the serpent's head? We'll have a look at this verse in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. We're told that Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It was by the cross. And the next verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Have a look at this. We're told that Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. So how did Jesus defeat the enemy, crush the serpent's head? Well, ironically, by his own death. Not with swords, not with chariots or bombs or missiles, but by his death on that brutal and horrific cross. I mean, that's a crazy idea, isn't it? To say that I've defeated the enemies by being killed myself. That's just a crazy idea. But it was through that death of Jesus that the great enemy, our great enemy, was defeated. But this was exactly what God had in mind right from the beginning in Genesis. Remember, what will the serpent do to the offspring of Eve? Remember in that promise? What will the serpent do? The serpent will strike the heel of the offspring. Remember that? The, the serpent will strike the heel of the offspring. How did the serpent do that? Well, that was the crucifixion. On the cross, Jesus was struck down. But the fascinating thing was that in that very same event, the serpent's head was crushed. His power was defeated. His power over death was destroyed. In that very same act, the, the offspring's head was struck, but the serpent's head was crushed. Who would have ever imagined that? Right from the beginning, chapter 3 of Genesis, God already had that plan. The, the post-exilic Jews, when they returned to the land, they had no idea that that was God's plan. But this is it. Jesus is that greater David, that offspring of Eve, that offspring of David, the victorious king over Satan and death, the king who has fought for us and won. So when, what then does all that mean to us today? What does the cross of Christ mean to us today? What does it mean to have Jesus as our king? Well, first and foremost, what it means is that if Jesus is not yet your king, make sure he is. Because the victory that Jesus has won on the cross only belongs to those who have Jesus as their king. And so if Jesus is not your king, then you are on your own. You're hopeless and you're defenseless. And you can be assured that you're facing a losing battle 
against Satan and death. Now, I don't know if everyone here has Jesus as your king, but it is my hope and prayer that Jesus is your king, that you too may share in the victory that Jesus has won. That's too important of a decision to ignore. Now, what about for those of us who do have Jesus as our king? Well, I would think we must remember daily, every morning, the victory that we have in Jesus, the victory that we share over Satan and death. And that must be the greatest thing ever. I mean, that must bring us the greatest joy ever, to know that no matter what happens in this world, we've seen crazy things in this world this year, earthquakes, tsunamis, no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens to us or what will happen to us, we are already victors because Jesus is our king. Now, just recently, among our very own church family, we've heard of members who've been through some tough times. I mean, people who have, have to go through surgery, life-threatening surgery. We've heard of kids breaking their bones. A youth group kid broke his collarbone. And even this week, Beck, she, she went to hospital, broke her nose. I mean, she played a bit too hard, but she, that was tough. Horrible things happen. And we hear about these things all the time. In the past week when I visited a church in Melbourne, I met with a man there and he told me about his tremendous suffering that he's been through. He, his wife left him. He's got a daughter whom he loves and adores, but he only gets to see his daughter five days in a fortnight. And above all that, he's got brain tumour. I mean, what terrible things to happen all at once. Now, perhaps things aren't going too well for you too. Perhaps things aren't going too well at work. Or perhaps things aren't going too well health-wise. Or perhaps things aren't going too well financially. But let me say, amidst all this, as tough as they are, as sad as they are, as disheartening as they are, and they are tough, they are sad, they are disheartening, there's no denying those things. But amidst all this, isn't it great to know, isn't it so comforting, comforting to know that we have a king who has fought for us and won. We are all victors in Christ. Jesus has defeated the devil and his hold over our lives and death no longer has his sting. And this is the way we should begin every morning, shouldn't it? I mean, to remind ourselves what Jesus has done for us on the cross. To remind ourselves the gospel of Christ that we do have a victorious king, a king who did not attend lavish parties, a king who did not just attend ceremonies, a king who did not take it easy in his grand palace, and a king who's far greater, far more powerful, far more intelligent than Alexander the Great, than Genghis Khan, than even King David himself, a king who has fought for us and won on that horrific but yet glorious cross. This is our victorious king. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that even at the beginning of the world, you had this great plan for the coming of the serpent crusher. And we thank you that Jesus Christ is that one whom you have made king and given victory over Satan and death. 
We pray that you can help us all. You may help us all be reminded daily of the victory we share in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.